<laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jolina Wolcott, and I am your hostess on this sacred learning journey of unraveling, unveiling, and becoming more fully alive at the end of the world as we know it. In this podcast, we offer up to you, dear listener, three forms of episodes to support your journey of remembering and re-enchanting. First, conversations with amazing people. Second, storytelling. And third, myth-casting. In this episode, we're going to bring you a conversation between myself another amazing, fascinating leader in the areas of remembering and re-enchanting. Hello, my name is Sarah Jelena Wolcott, and you are listening to the Remembering and Re-Enchanting podcast. Today, we have a chance to dive into one of the most important aspects of remembering and re-enchanting the continual creation and recreation of rituals for our times. Our guest and a friend of mine, Catherine Newell Okoji, is with us today, and she's calling in from Denver, Colorado, where she is currently living. We originally met at Union Theological Seminary, where we were both students. Today, Catherine is a ritual crafter, a spiritual leader, a speaker, and a writer. She has a background in the New Thought Movement and currently considers herself an interspiritual minister and a witch. Um, we're just going to dive straight into our conversation today. Uh, and there's actually a lot of places where we could start, as there always are. There's always multiple origin points. But Catherine, um, I really just wanted to first say thank you for joining us on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. I I did want to say I'm in Denver, Colorado, and want to just acknowledge the original caretakers of the land that I reside on, which is the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, and the Ute. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else about that land that you want to share with us? Um, It's magical. I have lived many places, and I keep coming back here. I was raised here. And if you get a chance to come to Denver, um, do it. Don't live and stay here, though. There's way too many people here now. <laughs> um, so it's not as fun as it once was, to be honest. But it is, the magic is out. I think people, <laughs> Lord got out and people came. But it's, uh, it's a very sacred land. And it's a cool mix of human beings, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I remember visiting you there a couple of years ago and um, we did a full moon ritual and a really wonderful collection of people showed up for that. Agreed. That was beautiful. It was a really fun night. And that was actually one of the first rituals, like public rituals I led Hmm. after seminary. Hmm. So I was grateful to lead that with you and to collaborate. It was not only fun, it was a deepening and it was kind of like a baptism by fire in a way. <laughs> it was like, do you really want to do this? Are you really meant for this work? Mm. Hell yes. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Those first offerings that people offer to the world can be really, can feel that, can feel like there's a testing almost that seems to happen through doing them. Absolutely. The alignment piece, like you say you are this person can you show up in public as this person? Mm. Turns out I did. So that was the very beginning, but I'm really Mm. grateful to you. Many times we've made ritual in different lands um, across this country, actually. And it's been wonderful and expansive and unpredictable every single time. And that's, Mm. that's the beauty of ritual too, right? The expansive and unpredictable Mm -hmm. part of it. And you're beginning to teach rituals now to others and to help others um, think about what does it mean for them to step into their public space as a ritual maker and creator. 
Uh, and I'm wondering, like, when you're doing that, so just based on our experiences or other experiences you've had, what what are you encouraging people to think about? I'm encouraging them to think a little, but mostly it's an embodied practice. Um, I think the thinking comes later. There mm. can be a lot of reflection and ritual, but I think that we we think too much in mm. society. Um that we're actually very cerebral. And that's a huge reason why I left the new thought movement. Actually, it was so cerebral. It was really just in the mind. And I realized, um, I just ended a, a stint as a minister at a, at a new thought church here in Denver and in grieving that experience, what it was, what it definitely was not. I reflected and realized, you know, what is the root of what I've done I was a chaplain for years in trauma spaces and hospitals, um, guiding people through like the worst experiences imaginable. Mm. Um, so I've worked in many different contexts and I kept thinking, you know, what is the root of what I'm doing? What is really, why am I on this planet? And a ritual just came up again and again and again. And it, it was not even, I mean, ritual's amazing, but what I love is the crafting. Mm. So I call myself a ritual crafter because I love that creation piece. And I think that, you know, I can lead rituals. I I love to do that. But what I love more than anything is to empower other people to lead their own rituals or to co-lead with me so that they're not alone, maybe in that space, but Mm. we get to make magic together Mm. through whatever they're, they're going through. So that's Mm -hmm. what I do now on a, I work with personal, like one-on-one rituals and with, it could be death or birth or career change or visioning or conflict with family or coworkers, whatever it may be. Um, and then I also really am calling in spaces and and communities to work with public ritual. That is Mm -hmm. really what I'm called to do is to redefine ritual as well. I think people hear that word. They're like, Oh, is that a Catholic mass? Is that, Mm. what are we getting involved with basically? Like what are the rules of ritual? And I don't really see rules um, many times in rituals. So it's, Mm. it's really decolonizing ritual practice is what I teach people and empower them to do and just make magic in every moment, make meaning. There's so much of life that's passing us by that we're not actually feeling through it. Mm. So my job Mm. is, I think to awaken folks Mm. and help people realign. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, you said like 10 things there that I think that we could go further into. <laughs> um, <Of course>. So, <laughs> and I, I could imagine people having questions about many things you just said, but let's actually start at, at what you were saying at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, what, tell us a little bit about what, about where you come from. What is this new thought movement? And like how how do you explain it to people, and what are some of the lessons that you are bringing from that uh, to the wider work of crafting rituals? I love this question. I I think that people and um, let's assume that like no one let's let's, let's do this for someone who has never heard of never. the new thought movement before. Totally, I was, and, and I think most people actually have heard of it. They just don't know they've heard of it. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. So perfect. It's, it's like the water we swim in and no one knows it. <laughs> just, it's like the oxygen that we breathe. Um, at least in this country, the new thought movement is uniquely American. Mm. It can exist other places, but not like it does here. It was invented here. It thrives here and it's baked into who we are in our identity as colonized and colonizers in America on this land. So it is the movement people. It's not, people think like it's like a religion and it can be, but I really view it as a movement. Um, and it's a paradigm, basically it's, it's a philosophy that started out as an idea, um, in the right around the time of the transcendentalist is really where it is like the pre-birth. Yeah. So what time period is that? The transcendentalists were really big, like 1840 to 1860, mm-hmm. 1870 or so. So it was that last part of the 1800s that um, people were 
getting much more educated. Um, people were going to school and they had a lot of questions. They weren't just tilling the land anymore. We were creating machines for us to have a little bit more free time, a little bit more time to read around the fire and chat and really question like why we're here on this Mm -hmm. planet and to engage with nature differently. I mean, that was what Emerson and mostly like Thoreau really honed in um, around Walden Pond. So Mm -hmm. that's where it really started. And where it took off was around 1880, 1890 in Boston. And if you know where the Transcendentalist movement, it's um, from Concord, Massachusetts, which is like a 40 minute drive from Boston. So in Boston, the very first branch started, which was Christian science by Mary Baker Eddy. And two things were interesting about this. Firstly, this is a uniquely feminine movement. There are men involved for sure. Never before had a religion or philosophy in the wider world that we knew, you know, in the colonized world, I guess. I'm sure there's many iterations around the world. But um, up until this point, this was the first woman that had ever birthed a movement Mm -hmm. in this way. And it started, many of these people studied with um, many healers, including Emma Curtis Hopkins. She's really like the grandmother of the movement. And long story short, think about that time. People were really busy, like trying to come to cities for the first time. Cities were coming up. They had all these jobs. And what I learned, especially about this time period is medicine was really not up to par at that time. So people were thinking about healing, talking about it. They were experimenting a lot with how to heal bodies and minds and all these things, but they, the medical community was not where it it is today at all. It's far beyond or behind. So this movement really started with the idea that your thought can change your reality. Mm. And it was birthed out of a lot of mostly sick people. So Mary Baker Eddy was one of those people that was very, very sick and started listening to other people and learning, um, oh, my thought, I can think my way out of this illness. The doctors aren't really giving me anything, you know, Uh, they don't have anything that really works at that time. You didn't know who to trust. So you trust yourself, you lean on yourself. And that's why it's uniquely American as well, because it's individualistic. It personalizes God. It brings it into your body. It puts God on the same level as a human. It's God is still all powerful, but the new thought movement uses language um, as if God was a part of you and every single cell in your body vibrating at the frequency of health and alignment. Mm. Mm. So that is the birth of it. And the, the very quick history is that it moves across the nation and there's four branches So Christian science started in Boston, the Unity Church, many people know them. They started in Missouri. Divine science started in Denver, Colorado. That is, um, I was located at a church here, the birthplace of divine science here. And then religious science, which is now called the Centers for Spiritual Living, they started in California. So as it moved across the country, every like 10 years or so, a new thread would pop up. They're very similar with some differences. Sure. And as they moved across, they started out very Jesus and Bible centric mm-hmm. and trying to access like the power um, and the, and like the mind of Jesus in the very beginning with Christian science. And then by the time you get to the West coast, it's very inner faith, very inner spiritual, very like whatever works, but it's all about the mind and the thought changes reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Mary Baker Eddy, um, she died in 1910. And I'm just wondering, uh, as you're describing that, I'm also not, it's like, to what extent do you think that this, because as you say, it was originally focused on health and the idea that your mind can heal your body. To what extent do you think that influenced um, people like Napoleon Hill and the Think and Grow Rich book that he wrote, which was so influential in which one aspect um uh, of, of that is, is thinking about the power of your thoughts for attracting wealth. It's exactly connected. Um, I actually took a class at union with, um, Dr. Daisy Machado, all about this thing called prosperity gospel. Mm. Um, they're very, very linked. What happened with prosperity gospel though, is that it, it took, it went from Christianity into the new thought movement. And then when 
when people tried to bring it back into Christianity, then you get even more complicated and problematic. So hmm. prosperity gospels is really problematic. Um, but can you just like summarize? I mean, I, I know what you're referring to and many listeners probably do, but can you kind of like summarize what, what we, what we mean when we say prosperity gospel? Oh, I think, I mean, we know a lot of them, right? Like this is again, the water we swim in. When you think about someone like Joel Osteen or TD Jakes, um, that's prosperity gospel, which is Christian, which is, you know, send me your money. I'll send you a snippet of it back, plant it in the ground. Maybe it'll grow. It's this idea. It's I honestly, I think it's fraud to be Mm -hmm. totally honest with you. Um, but it is the idea that your, that your thoughts plant things, but prosperity gospel with Christian pastors, it's often think about like millionaire pastors who fly on private jets, who have name brand shoes and (laughs) all that. I don't know if you've seen that like Instagram account, like preachers with sneakers or whatever. And it's, it's literally all about prosperity gospel preachers, like the Hillsong people. That's a lot of prosperity gospel. And so it's partly what it's doing is it's um, talking about the health and wealth gospel, the gospel of success, right? So it's it's sort of saying that part of how you know that God favors you um, and that God is real in your life is through the accumulation of material wealth and well-being, as well as that your faith and your um, your thoughts, what you're believing, what you're thinking, will attract material wealth or whatever it is that you're thinking, health and wealth, both. Absolutely. We see this very modern day um, through the movie, The Secret. Uh Um, We see it mostly through my dear beloved, Miss Oprah Winfrey, um, who (laughs) I tell people, she like practically raised me. I love that woman. And also it's complicated. Like Mm. who she has on her shows now, some can be great. Some it's like the border of, of problematic. And we need to like really interrogate who is giving us spiritual knowledge. Um, that was a huge issue that I had in the new thought movement. Um, that a lot of people don't, they just feel good. They want to feel good. This is a huge, it, it very much opposes, um, you know, decolonization. It very much opposes, mm. um, honoring you know, in, in like, owning our white privilege, Mm. um, owning what has been done to the native people of this land, owning that all this wealth that we're talking about is off the backs of the enslaved. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not real. Like, so there's a lot of it that's really problematic that I, I, I'm a manifester. I used ritual. I use, I use it all the time every day to manifest, um, sure money, anything, you know, whatever I want, but it's not about what I want in my paradigm. It's about alignment and it's about Mm. the betterment of society. And that is where often new thought diverges. It's becomes very internal, very about you and what you want and not about we and the community and the country and your neighbor. It's like, look what I did for myself in my house. Look at my car. Mm-hmm. And I love what you brought up earlier because that is really what drove me away um, mm. many times, and especially in seminary from the New Thought Movement, was it was so controlling this idea that that if I wasn't manifesting at a certain level in a certain way, if I had even a negative thought at all, it was paralyzing. I was like, there are many moments in my life I it, I couldn't think straight because I didn't want to harm the life I really wanted. And I wasn't at all embodying who I was in the moment. I wasn't connected to my body, my soul, my emotions. I was denying them. And my training in chaplaincy and trauma really taught me how unhealthy that is. And not only are you denying your emotions, then you're judging yourself for having these emotions or thoughts that are different. And so then it just makes people feel more poor instead of rich and, and, and more lonely instead of connected and Mm. more like it's on them. Like, what did they do? What, what thought in my mind created this really crappy reality? Mm. Mm. Okay. So 
I feel like you're just, I want to see if I can reflect back what you're saying and tell me if I'm getting this, um, if you, if this is what you're saying, because it's so, I think it's really important. I think we're untangling something here in our society that, and in um, certainly both, I don't, not just new age, but certainly a lot of the spiritual, not religious. And for those who are seeking to be, um, to engage differently with society, like, like really key and important points. So first to just like honor and recognize that there is some truth to the extent that your thoughts and the vibrations of your thoughts do influence the world around you, that your internal reality and your external reality is connected, that there is something in that that's really true, right? Absolutely. And to really and honor- we, we have the proof, right, Sarah, right? Like we live lives like that, right? Oh, the things that I manifest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the, in the rituals that we do, right? Mm-hmm. We're- we are powerful. Yes. And that so often yes. we're creating, often are, we are creating our realities and we're creating realities that sometimes, sometimes with lesser intention and sometimes with more intention. That's shadow. Absolutely. There's absolutely ways in which our shadow thoughts, which we're desiring things that we're creating for ourselves and our bodies that we don't think we want, but because but we're still creating them. Um, and that's that understanding of that is something that, that early, early women their own experience of their, like Mary Baker, Eddie, and others, it wasn't just her, their own experience of their bodies and of their minds and of their health in their personal lives, they were able to see these connections and to recognize it and to work with it and to play with it. Um, would you say that they were ritualized, that they that someone like Mary Baker, Eddie, was herself practicing certain types of personal rituals? Absolutely. Yes. I think... I mean, I look at um, an, an affirmative prayer as a spell mm. often. Can you, like, so an affirmative prayer being kind of like affirmations that someone might say in the morning? Um, every thread is different. I was trained in the religious science tradition. So we have, it's a five-step affirmative prayer um, mm. that is different than like, please, God, please, can I have this? Mm. It affirms that you already have it. Mm. It is acknowledging the, the connection that you have with spirit. It, it acknowledges that spirit is flowing through you, that you are part of this power, that you're not just like separate of it. You're co-creating with God. It acknowledges the reality that is unfolding. And it doesn't say it in a way of like, Oh, I want this. It says, I have this. I know this is mine. I know this is reality. And then there's gratitude and then a release. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. And that particular five step is something that you grew up learning how to practice and that you did practice and that you experienced the results of that in your, both for yourself and for your community. Absolutely. I still use it all the, all the time. I think it's a really, a much more effective way of prayer. Mm. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not begging spirit to do something. I am mm. co-creating. Um, at the, the difference is now is that I know that there is like a, a one mind and I am connected to it, but I am not knowing all of it. So I usually pray for like this or something better. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes mm. the worst thing in your life is saving you from something way worse, mm-hmm. which my younger self did not know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I think both of us have so many stories around, around experiences where you later find out like, actually that thing you thought was not so great was the absolute best thing that possibly could have happened to you. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I think that Mary Baker Eddy and the women who started these movements thought that, I mean, these were women who were not even getting the right to vote yet. They wanted to feel powerful. So heck yes, pray, like feel Mm. the surge of spirit through your body. Mm. They were, I think, tapping into a level of witchcraft, but Mm. you know, they did not want to get burned at the stake at all. (laughs) They didn't, right. They were using a different set of language and, and, and they were working with the, with the Bible. They're working with the Christian tradition. Yes. It protected them. Right. Mm. And it gave them language. I would imagine too. It helped them like kind of gave them some conceptual metaphysical frameworks through which their prayers could operate. Absolutely. And that would have resonated with the culture around them. That they, the, the white culture around them that they were a part of, because at that time, this is also the time of westward expansion, and so this movement of new, this sort of new thought and this 
what what is the relationship between I don't know if you know this, but between new thought and new age? They're the same thing. New age is just a term that was coined more so in like the 60s. It it happened when Eastern influences kind of started ushering in new thought. It was it was really just American. And then people started traveling to India and oh, yogas was introduced. Okay, we have Vedas now. Okay, we do these things. Mm-hmm. Then you have but, but also it's uniquely American, remember? So it's also colonizing. So as it goes across the nation, it's taking. As it goes across the world, it's taking. I mean, think about how many new thought, new age people have done a like sweat lodge, have no idea what land they're on when they're doing it. Mm. They just go down to Sedona or something. And they're like, God, it was the, just the best time I paid like $3,000 <laughs> for some white guy to like do an, you know, Native American flute in my face and, and I'm healed. And it's I'm like, oh, you mm. missed a lot right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, so this, this movement that is recognizing the power of the human mind in a way that European culture had not been recognizing for the past couple hundred years. And then that, as, as we go forward in, in, in us history, that's get That is, um, uh, like finding a lot of alliances, particularly with Eastern um, Buddhist and Hindu thinking, which has some of those same uh, philosophies, but they're contextualized very, very differently. Um, and then, and then that is kind of leading to this sort of com- conglomeration of things that used to be called New Age. I think we now, uh, I think sometimes we refer to it as the transcendental movements and as. Uh, transformational festivals and a lot in the yoga space and the spiritual, not religious space yeah. has, has been imbued with, I think your, your, like the, your reference to the seeker film is like, you know, I think most people I know at least have at least heard of, if not seen multiple times <laughs> that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of right. Re- and it's recognizing this thing, which is on some level true, which is the power of the individual, and the power of our thinking and the power of, and is there a focus on collective thinking traditionally in new thought as in everyone praying together for something as having a particular power or is it more individual based? It's tech. It's mostly um, individual based, but no, there are a few times where people um, definitely get together in new thought. I've definitely visioned a lot with people. Oh, so like like collective visions, collective visioning. Like there's like a process I've done many times. Um, for for an individual or for like the church, like what is the, the building of a new oh, church? Both, actually, like? yeah, we visioned like a mission for the community. We visioned um, like the next stage for the community. But I've also done visioning where you sit in a circle and like each person kind of gets a turn and you get like 10 minutes per person and everyone visions mm-hmm. for like for Sarah right now. Right. And then everyone visions for Catherine next. And um, and then we kind of all share that. And at this point in your work, would you say that that type of visioning and channeling is sort of the same thing, or are they? Do you see them as? Do you think? Do you see channeling as really different? I experience them similar. I don't know if everyone does, um, but the way that I vision is very like visual. Some people do like words, so I think mm-hmm. it depends on how you particularly vision. Things can come up in all different ways. Okay, but that itself is a ritual. Right. right. I mean, you're, right. you're, you're kind of casting the circle, you're cementing it, you're doing a prayer. You're, a, you know, the thing that I tell people is the difference between a ritual and a routine is intention. Mm. And so as long as you are awake and you are in your body, that is often a ritual. Mm. It's when we just go about our days, that becomes a, a routine. A routine. Right. So, so we have this movement spreading across the country. Um, it's doing so, and there's a couple of, fall- I guess we could call them fallacies or incompletenesses to it. One is that the a misunderstanding of how both health and wealth are ecologically indetermined and the extent to which both health and wealth in the modern society is deeply determined by systemic and uh, uh, like colonial influences. That's one major fallacy. So it's not recognizing the more than individual aspects of both health and wealth. Um, And the extent to which it's individualistic is not supporting uh, eco-human communities. Would that that be accurate? 
Uh, very much so. I would say that. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's, this can't happen. The New Thought Movement couldn't have happened without capitalism. Mm, mm, it is interesting. I don't think that people mean it that way, but it is extraction based often. And I think that that's what happens when something like the secret goes viral and someone just tells you, you can manifest a $5 million house in a month. And people go, oh my God, this is my ticket out. This is my ticket Mm. to happiness. Mm. And that has been why I go back to ritual every single time and why I've studied and participated in rituals with almost every kind of faith community I can think of on the planet in different locations and different continents, because it's the embodiment practice and it's the community practice that always rooted me. Mm. The manifestation piece was a byproduct of that. Um, And I don't think that that is part of the new thought movement. It was about you getting what you wanted instead of we feeling aligned. And Mm. if the earth came in between that, too bad. bad. I'm sure there's tons of people who are working in oil and gas right now who practice some form of, of new thought. Mm, right, they're they're working on visioning and manifesting, and and also then I also hear like what people think you should vision and manifest for yourself, i.e. that you know multi million dollar house, which in the very construction of that house is actually destroying ecosystems both around it and in other parts of the world, is being shaped by a larger society that the that the movement has not been able to question. Like it's not questioning, it's not questioning what are we envisioning. And what no, are we trying to it's, manifest? It's, it's, assume, with, it's assuming that it's okay. It has to, because it's laced with white supremacy. Mm. Mm. That's what white supremacy does. It's blinders on. It doesn't affect me. So mm. not only is it like hurting the earth, the house, right? It's, I don't know whose land this actually is. No one ever thought like, let's stop and question what we're doing. They really just enjoyed expansion. And I do too. I love expansion so much. Right. What do you mean by expansion? Just a paradigm, like an expansive paradigm. People say that, you know, growth mindset. Um, but that's what capitalism is. It's just like, you're taking capitalism and putting it in a, in a spiritual principle, but after a while, and that was something I realized in seminary, I was like, wait a minute, there comes a time when we should stop growing or (laughs) there's a time we shouldn't keep building something Mm. or shouldn't keep. And, and honestly taking your remembering class, that was part of it for me was, Oh, there's limits. We have this one planet and this is our home. And it was a long time of my life thinking always more, like there'll always be more. There's an abundance. That's this is the abundance mindset of like, of course, there's always more and realizing it's okay if there isn't. Mm. And that was revolutionary Mm. for me, a kid growing up. I'm the fourth generation member of this movement. So my Mm. great grandmother started it in our family and it's been passed down. So to question it, to leave it, to be a minister, but not a new thought minister is like Mm. mind blown (laughs) for a lot of people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I love the earth too much and I love mm. indigenous wisdom too much. And that's why witchcraft is like this beautiful in-between for me, because I got in touch with my real ancestors and didn't need to harm this continent anymore. I didn't need to consume rituals in a way and, and, and take from the native populations here. I realized, oh, I'm Celtic. I have my people. Mm. And once I realized where I came from, I wasn't just like a lost white girl on this continent who has real no identity. I had an identity. I had a place. I had an origin and doing that work. And the remembering course really changed a lot for me um, in so many ways, including honoring even the Christian part long before new thought. Cause for a long time, I'm like, Oh, I'm not Christian. So I didn't do all that harmful stuff. My people didn't do that. I thought I was like opt out. I opted out. You know, my ancestors were so much better. <laughs> what a joke. Um, <laughs> so I got to get in touch with that too, through, through your courses and, and realizing like, you know, reading Starhawk and, and understanding the history of witchcraft and, and, and realizing before modern medicine, before these doctors came along, it was 
the wise woman in the village. And once it just all clicked for me, I was like, oh, this doesn't, it ha- doesn't have to be an either or mm. it, it can be all the things. And it, I don't have to extract from other people's traditions. Once I figured out my own, I could honor mm. it. Mm. 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 And how have your visions? I'm so curious, like, as you've, as you found uh, a more centered place, like how have your visions changed? How's your desire changed? Oh, immensely. I'm living a life right now that I kind of wanted, but probably didn't know was possible. I just really, I was single for a long time. I moved around a lot. I really was, especially most of my twenties and before I was so trained to focus on success, to focus on the biggest impact. Um, You know, my ego needs to be happy for all these things, you know, to be in alignment and getting in touch with the land, getting in touch with very simple rituals, just the elements, the seasons. I love the seasons. Like right now, the, the leaves, I can't tell you. I just don't know what happened in my life before I practiced these things. I wasn't aware of the every day, every moment magic that I am now. So things are very different. I have... um a beautiful kid. I have a beautiful spouse. I have, I'm like, I'm, I'm happier with simple things. I'm happier Mm. with like a really good meal. I don't need to go to fancy restaurants. I don't need to like the worth of something. Isn't how much I paid for it or how much Mm. I got a deal for it, which is what I was often raised to think. I just, I love the moments with my friends. I love the moments just walking my dog. And that's mm. something I, I didn't think would make me happy. So I'm still honestly interrogating that part of me. There are still moments that I'm like kind of almost borderline grossed out at how much I love being a mother. <laughs> like what? This really? is it? Yeah, but it's so good. Because, like because it's so simple or because it's not what you thought you wanted? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. And yes. And <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I mean, I, I always thought I'd be a mom, but I was like, okay, yeah. And, but my real impact is going to be oh, all these so other things. And I'm realizing, oh, if I do a really great job at raising a phenomenal human, like that will be enough. If I'm a good person to my personal community, that's enough. I never had that before. I thought it had to go viral for it to matter. I Mm. was raised to believe that if you don't have a New York times bestseller, who the hell are you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So that expansiveness, that that kind of like expansiveness of like that, which in some ways is so powerful. And so, as you say, not just seductive, but has a lot of really kind of authentically beautiful parts to it, which is taking you out of whatever rut you might be in and saying there is more for you in this life that's possible. You don't have to get stuck in whatever it is that you've been told has to be your fate. Um, but like that, that, that can really backfire and take you away from your own desire and from the uh, beauty of everyday living. Big time. But the sheer, the sheer wonder of ordinariness, I feel like we, that is something that like to, to be able to uh, just love and the experience of washing the dishes every day, you know, like to be able to recognize the magic and sweeping, to be able to recognize the power of um, caring for our little tiny plots of gardens, no matter where they be and, and, and the revolutionary acts of resting, like it's, we, like so much of, of, of the graciousness of life can be so small, so called small. Mm-hmm. And yet the therein is so much power. Oh, big time. But that's, that's what I learned from nature. Mm. And mm. that's why people now are like, Oh, why did you leave? Why did you <laughs> all these things? Um, because I know that this planet is way more amazing than anything that my mind could dream up. And I actually have deeper visions and more expansiveness just by, you know, sitting under a tree. Mm. Mm. And it is, like you said, resting is a luxury. 
Mm. And the pandemic helped us all figure that out, that we were all Mm. working way too hard and traveling way too much. And so sitting, um, just having a cup of coffee with my husband is just Mm. magic. I don't need to prove anything to a tree. (laughs) You know, a flower is not worried about what I'm wearing (laughs) or how much I weigh. Right. Right. Yeah. It's nature is like this. Oh, like this breath of fresh air and the big literally, <laughs> literally, I know. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like as for as so many of us ground and center ourselves and in, in a um, earth centered uh, spirituality, you know, there's old phrase from one of the great old theologians, um, Tillich, who describes ground as the ground, God as a ground of our being. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's kind of this irony, irony of like, oh, actually, no, the ground is a ground of our being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we don't <laughs> like to find the divinity in the soil, um, and to to experience what does it mean to actually walk on with in soil uh, has a power to it that has been uh, denied to us. In so many ways. Absolutely. Mm. And so now as, so I feel like this conversation has been like super important because we've been able to tease out a lot of pieces out here and, you know, to, to once again, to say like the, the, the lack of, you know, the, what, what we kind of loosely reference in some of the challenges of the uh, think and grow rich or the, um, you know, your mind influences your health is the lack of systemic, although there is some truth in it. Um, and, and some of that truth can be revolu- revolutionary for people and people have regularly shifted all sorts of things in their lives through understanding that the lack of understanding and being able to engage with systemic challenge, systemic issues, um, understanding the histories of colonization and the depth of unfairness of capitalism the real limits to growth that do exist, and especially in terms of material reality, the blatant lack of paying attention to what is it that we are really asking for and envisioning, and what are the impacts of that on the planet, on ourselves, on one another, um, on our fellow humans, as well as our non-human friends and family. Um, and, And also the ways in which it can take you away from your own internal experience. Uh, of what what are you actually feeling? What is actually going on in the room? And to recognize that there is often a very critical place for negative, quote unquote, negativity, anger, sadness, grief, that all of those quote unquote negative emotions um, and feelings and thoughts uh, are part of what it means to be a healthy human being and often entirely relevant for, uh, they are a healthy response for a system that's really failing us. Um. And that there is this in-between way. I love what you said at the end there about the power of, of the potentiality of witchcraft and of, of deepening into the craft as a way, as an in-between space that's neither us um, taking from other someone else's culture, uh, nor is it, it doesn't have to have the escapism, although I think it often sometimes does. Um, have various forms of spiritual bypassing, but but there is a potential within which practices and the revitalization of um, of these practices that can take us back to both take us back and lead us forward um, and help us work with time differently within the limits of a ecological home. Yeah, I think that's what the the Celtic calendar has helped me with. And like, I love this time of year because of that, because of Samhain um, and the winter solstice and, Mm. and the death that we see as we drive down the street. And it's like, all these leaves are dying and they're absolutely gorgeous on the way out. Mm. And I've just loved that. Like it's as a chaplain, I have seen (laughs) a lot of dead bodies um, and it's, people are always shocked, like, oh gosh, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you saw this. And it's, it's a gift. And I look at that 
time of my life serving in that capacity is the same way I look at, at these trees. It's a gift. And I wish that we could look at the elderly and the sick in our society, you know, as a, as the gift, like, mm. whether they're around forever or not, mm. like, we have like, this moment. <laughs> I like, I like thinking about the gifts of sickness. Yes. And real health. And that was something that it took me going to a hospital and working there for several years to realize that sometimes, you know, the goal often, you know, outside the hospital is to be thin, to be pretty to all these, Mm. you know, wear makeup and all this stuff. And in the hospital, I've seen thinness and it comes with a colostomy bag Mm. and it comes at the last moments of your life. Like thinness is, is not the goal there. Um, it's very different thing. Like looking at, you know, what a good body is, Mm, mm. um, has really changed it for me. And I can see goodness in every body. And so that was decolonizing for me as well. Just this paradigm death, a paradigm shift of, of illness that my whole life was like, Oh, you have to be healthy. Like no matter what, or if you're unhealthy, then your mind is unhealthy. And in fact, I saw more amazing humans have absolute complete accidents, Mm. like car accidents and cancer diagnoses over and over again to some of the kindest humans that I have ever met. Mm. And people that had gorgeous families and people that serve their society in all different facets. And I thought, this is insane. Like these people are thinking wonderful thoughts. They're doing wonderful deeds and they're still dying or they're still coming in mangled or hurt or whatever it is. And it's, it's not on them. So it shifted it for me. And I think about that every, I think about it a lot, but especially during this time of year when we are literally seeing death around us. And that's like the lesson of Samhain is, you know, like the thin space where our ancestors can come back and commune with us. And it's, I'm not afraid of that. And I, I think so much of my ministry is helping people not be afraid of that. And those negative emotions, like you said, I hate the word negative emotions. <laughs> They're all very yeah, it's good. totally the wrong way of describing it. Right. <laughs> Do you know how many people use that? This like, uh, yeah. It's just call it uncomfortable. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And it's okay. But especially white women were taught like our goal and our job on the planet is to make people comfortable. So if we're angry, oh, that is like the worst. Mm. <laughs> so mm. I've really spent a lot of my time since becoming a witch <laughs> being real mad mm. and honoring the anger and ritualizing through it. And I think that that is so sacred. Mm. Can you describe um, a ritual around anger and rage? Oh, yeah, I literally destroyed an entire dresser with like an axe like last year um yeah someone really can you like paint the picture of that like did you did you cast a circle or what was your process um there weren't many people because also it's very dangerous so definitely wear like eye protection (laughs) um so safety first everybody (laughs) Um, around Uh But my sister had this like old dresser that I don't like got at a flea market. Like it was just like, it passed down so many different hands. And finally it was just really, it it could not hold clothes or really anything anymore. And so they brought it out into the yard and, um, God, at first I was like nervous, right? Cause so you planned this, right? You planned to destroy the dresser. Oh yeah. Someone really not great harmed our family. <laughs> okay. So there, there had been an experience of harm. Uh-huh. A huge, oh yes. And we could not get in a room and yell at this person, which is mm. all we want to do sometimes. Right. Mm. So I, all I wanted to do was just scream at this human for, for harming um, our family so, so, so deeply. And I couldn't do it. So, but I couldn't have it live in me because it just infests and eats and it's, it's a hungry ghost as they say. And, um, 
so we went outside. I, we had been planning it for like two months and it just never seemed to work with my schedule, you know? So when the day finally came, I remember just kind of waking up and being like, today is the day mm. I need it. My heart was like going to burst. My stomach was just done. So, uh, yeah, I was out in the backyard, got the proper gear. There's a lot of breathing at first. And I was, for me, I don't know how everyone feels with anger. For me, I felt scared that I would be like so angry. I couldn't stop it or something. Like once I start this, like, will it hurt me? Will it hurt other people? And I think that's like the fear of anger in general Mm -hmm. that we've like squelched it so much. But for me, that's what came up. So I like, I just breathed. And, um, my husband did a little bit first (laughs) and I was like, oh, it's not that bad. It's okay. It's a little scary. There's like little splinters and things flying. And, um, so you definitely have to like stay back from whoever's doing it. I definitely got cut like doing it. You know what I mean? Mm. They fly at you. Like I felt like at the end, I, I don't have like a scar from it, but I had, you know, a mark from this moment. It lasted Mm. with me. And I just screamed like Mm. a lot of screaming words. I really wanted to say to this human and, and to God, like, I, I just, I always like yell at a person. I feel like my anger is always like starts off at the thing. And then I'm like, this is so messed up that this even happened. (laughs) So I was upset with, with spirit too, and got that out. And it, it felt amazing afterwards. So, yeah, I don't think you need to, you can cast a circle if you want with that kind of thing, but I think just getting conscious, everyone felt differently afterwards though. Some people really liked it. Some people were like, oh, this was very intense or, Mm. um, I found out some people were more talkative. Like some people, you know, get it out and they're like, oh, I got all these things to say. And finally I can say all this stuff. And for me, I was depleted and done mm. like scorched earth mm. kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you, you got all this out and then you just sort of needed to do nothing afterwards yeah yeah so I'm really hearing the importance like when creating um if you're gonna do create a space for yourself to to really release rage to give yourself time afterwards to um to do whatever needs to, you need to do, such as taking a nap. <laughs> yes, that is such a good point. We did we scheduled nothing that entire day because we had mm-hmm. no idea what would happen, mm-hmm. where we would be with that. And that's so important. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm like now remembering this being <laughs> the body remembers. Um, and we would yell at each other like while doing it, like. Mm-hmm say it louder. Come on. Like, what do you really want to say? Come tell her. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. um, it was good to, to do it with people too. Like I, it's good to not be watched. Sometimes I I really like not being watched during rituals. And then also there's something about it, especially with anger rituals to almost be egged on almost like Mm -hmm. you're doing this taboo thing in our society, like Mm -hmm. making it out in public. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's also a form of validation, right. And of, of, of like, it's okay to do this. It's okay to do this thing that most of society says you should never do. You should never yell at the top of your lungs and you should never like, you know, unless you're a demolition of a house, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you're not supposed to take out your anger on furniture or objects. Right. Although now there is, I don't know if you know this, there are rage rooms all across this nation. Now. Oh, really? They have popped up and in, in, there's several in Denver. I know there's probably way more in New York. Um, yeah. Just the past like three, four years and you can donate stuff to be destroyed if you want as well. Mm-hmm. It's really great. And people pay money to just spend 20 minutes in a room, scream their lungs out and like go back to their life. <laughs> I encourage people to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And one can. Um, and so like, are you helping people like, finding ways of integrating all you know 
rage and other emotions. It sounds, I mean, you are finding ways of helping people integrate rage and other emotions into their, their regular life um, to help, to, to help it not fester. Big time. That is also something that um, I'm going to be doing more of at the end of this month, because on October 30th, Mars goes retrograde until January. And then like the post retrograde shadow lasts until March. So I am particularly creating rituals and courses right now to help people uh, channel their anger and get it out and look mm-hmm. at it and express it mm-hmm. in a very different way than they have done previously and, and use this moment as medicine. Mm. Mm. So it's a moment where people might experience more anger. Is that what you're saying? They might experience more anger or less anger depending on like who they are. Mm-hmm. So a retrograde, when every, any planet goes retrograde, I just think of the word reflection. It's a mm. chance to look at that part of your life. And Mars really highlights our anger, our action. Um, so depending on like what uh, sign you have in your Mars, like that determines some stuff, but mainly it's a chance for us all to look at how we handle anger and getting things done, like the fuel in our lives, like the fiery part of ourselves. So I think people that like never really tap into that are going to feel on fire. Hmm. And oftentimes people that are really like maybe extra masculine will feel a lot of water energy or something. Hmm. Uh, But it's a chance to kind of, it just flips around for a couple months. Um, But it's hard individually (laughs) But always when things go retrograde, I, you know, I think systemically. So I, it's people that don't even know that these cycles are going on that I worry about the most, like our world leaders. Um, mm. So not great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, this has been really, really rich. Uh, I just want to check in to see if there's anything that you may, wanted to make sure that you said before, uh, before we bring this session to a close. I just thank you for this time. Mm. I, I have appreciated taking many courses with you and um, learning my ancestry and tapping into my creative wisdom uh, through writing and um, the people that I've met through your organization and just through your circle have been really wonderful as well. So um if you haven't taken a, a course with Sarah or engaged, I would, I would just, um, I'd say like, t- take that risk too, right. Take the leap, um, and try it. I think that even if it's not what you think it might be better, <laughs> like you were saying, so why not? I don't think it's going to harm anyone to know the depth of who we are and where we come from. It will only heal, um, us personally and systemically. Mm. So, so thank you for the work that you do in the world. It really matters. And I'm grateful to be your colleague and your friend. And uh, if anyone out there wants to create magic with me and is empowered and inspired at all, and even if it's something that we haven't even like covered um, something else entirely, if it's something just burning in your heart, uh, reach out, send me an email. You can find me at katherinewell.com. And I just appreciate the space. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we will have uh, links to many of these, um, many of the things that we've been referencing. I will be in the show notes, including Catherine's own website and ways of reaching out to her. I'm just so appreciative that in this particular conversation that we were really able to kind of tease out some of the background through which these uh, current conversations are happening. Um, current conversations about what is it? What does it mean to to be working as individuals and as collectives, and to you and the power of our mind and the power of our of our thoughts, and the and what does it mean to be to be engaging with this work as ecological beings, um, and who are part of a more than human family, and where our visions and our dreams may they come to be really in tune with that more than human family, so that our very sense of our needs and our responsibilities might be in greater service to all of life. Amen.
Thank you so much for listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am always happy to hear from you, dear listener, to continue finding ways to connect the disconnected and go deeper on your own journey of remembering and re-enchanting with your communities, your organizations, and your families. I invite you to check out our courses and other community offerings via the Sequoia Summit Bio website. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Though I must admit I spend much more time working with really amazing people than crafting social media. If you want to work with me one-on-one or bring me to speak at your organization or family office, you can find out more at sarahjelina.com.